You're listening to What's Wrong With This Picture? Freaky Films and Why We Frickin' Love Them. Hi, I'm Lindsay McCullough. And I'm Gary Mulholland. And in each episode of What's Wrong With This Picture, we'll be looking at a movie we think is weird and wonderful. We sometimes do include the endings where it's key to what the film is, so please be prepared for that. So anyway, buckle up and join us on a journey to dangerous cities, suburbia and other fantasy worlds. It's going to be a wild ride. This time we're looking at some bonkers brilliance from 1954, Johnny Guitar, directed by Nicholas Ray. The cinematographer was Harry Stradling and it stars Joan Crawford as Vienna, Sterling Hayden as Johnny Guitar, Mercedes McCambridge as Emma Small, and Scott Brady as The Dancing Kid. It was written maybe by Philip Jordan, maybe by Ben Maddow. We'll come back to that a bit later. But Gary, tell us about the plot. So, a man uh, rides into a uh, windswept Arizona cattle town uh, back in the Old West, and um, uh, there he goes to a saloon, which is built into uh, the side of a cliff. And the owner of this saloon is Vienna, uh, played by Joan Crawford. Um, what we soon learn is that Vienna is not entirely popular uh, with the townsfolk of this tiny outpost um, because she wants a railroad and business and civilization and the future of American capitalism. And they frankly don't uh, because uh, they've got the town um, all sort of wrapped up for cattle and being an outlier and not really being connected to anything or anybody else. Um, Johnny um, Guitar, who is the man who rode into town, um, is soon engaged in a very strange, uh, what we see as a bizarre love quadrangle, uh, which is done in one scene, really, between um, him, uh, Vienna, who he has plainly had some kind of dalliance with, uh, another gentleman called The Dancing Kid, who has plainly also had some dalliance with Vienna, and uh, Emma Small, who is kind of the ringleader of everybody who hates Vienna in the town and uh, seems to be both uh, slightly obsessed with The Dancing Kid and uh, maybe strangely obsessed with Vienna as well. Um, There starts to be the idea that they're going to actually run Vienna and her cohorts, uh, which include Dancing Kid and his gang, um, out of town. And they get their excuse uh, when a stagecoach is held up outside of town and the dancing kid and his gang are wrongly blamed uh, for this. Um, uh, the ringleader of what is basically a kind of lynch mob um, is John McIvers. But um, we see very clearly that it is Emma uh, who is really the um, the absolute uh, power behind this particular idea. And they give um, our heroes um, 24 hours to leave town. Meanwhile, um, Dancing Kid thinks, well, and his gang think, well, we can't really afford to leave town. Um, so what we're going to do is going to rob the local bank uh, in order to fund this. Um, this all goes wrong and they end up fleeing to a secret hideout. Uh, back at the saloon, uh, the lynch mob arrived to blame Vienna for this bank robbery because she happened to sort of be there. And they find a wounded member of Dancing Kid's gang called Turkey. Uh, he is very young and very frightened and basically says, oh, yes, it was all Vienna's fault. She all planned it. This is the perfect excuse to say, right, we're going to hang both of you. Um, and at that point, um, they also burn the saloon to the ground. So, Lindsay, <laughs> what's wrong with this picture? 
Well, in the uh, DVD version that I have of Johnny Guitar, there's a little introduction by Martin Scorsese, who must have seen, I don't know what, 100,000 films, maybe? I don't know. He <laughs> says, there's really no other film quite like it. Yes. So, the end. Until next time. <laughs> no, yeah. Of course not. Of course not. Um, you'll, you'll, Gary, you'll have described. I'm not sure if we quite got the picture over, but this is this is on paper at least a western. Yes. This is a cowboy film. There are people with guns. There are people on horses. Yeah. Um, but I feel like you take what you know about westerns. Send it on a horse out of town because this is not like other westerns, Absolutely and this is not. this is what makes it weird. As Scorsese himself says, it seemed like a western, it looked like a western, but people didn't really know what to make of it. So I think one of the first weirdnesses is that it's called Johnny Guitar, but really this is Vienna's show, and in fact the character of Johnny Guitar isn't even on the poster. This is a very kind of dressed up fancied up Joan Crawford, who is the hero of, of this um, poster. Um, there's a, There are some Western aspects to it. So there's a saloon, as you said, uh, but it's a weird saloon. There's a shootout, but it's a weird shootout. There's kind of masculinity, but it's a very weird masculinity on show. So it's it's a Western that takes all these tropes and kind of flips them on their head. And then you've got Joan Crawford, Notorious bad mother, film star, icon. What else was she? She was a whole range of other things. What do you reckon? Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Um, it it is, that sums it up. It looks like a western. It it has all the western tropes, but it does nothing whatsoever in the nineteen fifties that would amount to being a, a western. It subverts every tradition. So therefore, uh, it's two women that drive all of the action. Um, there is quite plainly quite complex and bizarre levels of sexuality going on between four of the main characters, which, of course, in the 1950s, you can't just put on screen. But so all has to be done with dialogue, yeah. facial expressions, um, camera angles, you know, everything possible that you could do to go, they're having sex or they're not having sex and it's driving them insane, which is probably more to the case. Um there's also the colour scheme, Lindsay. The yeah. colour scheme. This is it. It's the sort of thing that you might expect in, I don't know, a particular florid um, version of Lawrence of Arabia, or maybe a period picture where it's all about, oh, let's make this really, really pretty. Yeah. And then you take that, and then you dial it up by about twenty. Um. So every single colour in Johnny Guitar is so vivid and bright and is relentless, relentlessly screaming at you something about the character. Yeah, absolutely. So Vienna's clothes in, in particular, you know, she wears bright colours. She's got this kind of yellow shirt on at the end that supposedly she'd borrowed, she's borrowed from Turkey. And I was reading online, no teenage boy is wearing this yellow <laughs> shirt and this red cravat in, in, in those days. There's there's um, She wears this red lipstick all the time. The colours are really heightened. Um you mentioned that the, the, the saloon burns down, the, the, the colours there, there are bright greens, there are bright whites, notably. I, I, I should say that, so this is this is set in the, the desert. This saloon is kind of built into the cliffs, as you, as you mentioned. But Vienna's apartment 
it's like some fantasy Eckler <laughs> kind of fantasy. She's got busts of Bach. She's got <laughs> candelabras. She's got a four-poster bed. And then she's got this piano at the back of her. But it's not like a saloon piano. Ring, 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 yeah, ring, yeah, that, no. You know, that where, where, where everything stops when the hero comes through the door. It's not like that. It's like a grand piano. It's a Steinway or something, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? It's just, where has she got this thing <laughs> in know. the middle of Arizona? And how, is, how has she got it there? But, um, I mean, perhaps she's used some of her famous charms because another mm-hmm. thing about this film is, as you say, it's it doesn't portray sex, but it's very frank about sex. And Vienna, in particular, is very frank that she has used sex to pretty much. I think she says at one point, every brick, every beam, every plank in this place, I worked for. And you know when she what says work means. she yeah. worked for it, girl, you better work. She worked for it. Yeah. Um, and similarly, the reason that she knows that the railroad is coming this way, I really need to look at this dialogue because it's uh, quite key. Yeah, the reason she knows where the railroad is going to be is she says to one of the, the railroad guys, I ran into your surveyor and we exchanged our confidences. <laughs> <laughs> so she's basically kind of shagged her way into this knowledge and, and shagged wow. her way into owning this saloon. Um, so what she's worked for, she wants to keep. And also, yeah, I suppose how you say it like, like that, it's almost as if, okay, the thing that has made her is the thing that's going to break her because... Isn't it always the case? Yeah, you know, because obviously, yeah, she's managed to build this kind of mini empire through, um, I don't know, let's just say it frankly, what appears to be sex work. and But her sexual allure uh, and the fact that it's drawn in the dancing kid and... Emma Small, on one level or another, is the leading to the yeah. end of this empire, and yeah. um, and and that you know it, she, this magnetism of hers is what is in the end going to bring her down. Um, I also kind of wondered if we could just chat a little bit, and you could help me because uh, you know this film so well about my two favourite scenes in the movie. So one is really near the beginning, and it's essentially uh, the gang's all here scene. So right. you're going to meet. Every single person, yeah, pretty much, yeah. that's important in this film, and it, and it is. How do I explain it? So basically, there's two men having a mixture of a penis joust and a kind of vaguely flirtatious thing, um, which is Johnny Guitar, uh, who, aka Johnny Logan, uh, because. It should be said that Johnny Guitar is actually a gunfighter called Johnny Logan who has renamed himself in order to get away from gunfighting. And he is played by Sterling Hayden uh, quite magnificently and we'll be back to Sterling Hayden later. Um, Then there is Emma Small and the dancing kid and the dancing kid essentially sexually torturing her in front of everyone by dancing with her. Um, And some of the most extraordinarily ping-pong dialogue between the four of these people, all coded sort of sexual yeah. signals about I do want you or I don't want you. Uh, what what you, what you telling me, Lindsay? I don't know. I feel that was quite a big build up, and I feel like <laughs> <laughs> how am I going to top that? Um, is so this 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 dancing scene. Um, Emma's brother has been killed, I think, in the stagecoach robbery mm. that you referred to at the start, that the dancing kids gang did not do. They do do the, the bank robbery, but they, they don't, don't do the, do the, the stagecoach stage yes. robbery. Um, and her dead brother's body has been brought to has been brought to Vienna's saloon and laid out on the billiards table. I think it's the billiards table. So when the dancing kid and his gang, gang come in, and he kind of knows, I think, what Emma 
thinks about him or that, that she has a fancy for him. Of course, she's incredibly jealous, as you say, of Vienna because the dancing kid kind of looks at Vienna and looks at Emma and is like, mm, yeah, Vienna's, Vienna's the one for me. So they dance. John, the, Johnny Guitar is playing the guitar. Uh, Sterling Hayden, as he says, is not playing the guitar, but Johnny Guitar is playing the guitar. And they're dancing to this, a kind of, you know, Western two-step that takes them all over. And Emma's forgotten, the dancing kid doesn't know, and we've forgotten that her brother is lying dead on this billiard table until a a, a twirl in this Western two-step lands them next to Emma's brother's body. Yeah. And so this this kind of uh, but it's not really a happy dance. I don't know I don't know. I don't think I agree with you that the dancing kid is necessarily deliberately sexually torturing Emma. Really? Yeah. But I think I think he's Nonetheless, she is definitely sexually tortured, and and the, the brilliance of Mercedes McCambridge that we'll come on to, who plays yeah, Emma, good. <laughs> this 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 she's she's physically much smaller than than yep. Vienna. She's she's a, a small woman. She's got this incredible face, this incredible kind of yearning face, or or or, or wickedness kind of face. Yeah. Every emotion, every negative emotion, because she only has negative emotions. She only has negative emotions. Every negative right. emotion is etched on this. Um, and I would say that Mercedes McCambridge, in the by the standards of the time, is not a traditional Hollywood beauty. No, you could say the same of Joan Crawford. She's an odd-looking cove as well. Yeah. Um, but but Mercedes McCambridge, is, especially, she's she's short. She's got kind of tightly curled dark hair. She's, she's androgynous. She's a tomboy. She, she is a little bit, and you know Orson Welles made good use of that in Touch of Evil. When, exactly. Do you remember we um, there lesbian couple, biker gang yeah, leader that, that we used to call the hench lesbians because yeah. they, they kidnap they kidnap Janet Lee. So yeah. she, in her later career as a, as a hench lesbian, the, 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 it's made good good use of of this face. So this torture that she goes through through this dance, only to end up by the body of her of her brother. Yeah, so there's the weird. Yeah. And then there is an extraordinary scene as well, um, which where basically, once again, uh, they, you know, this lynch mob of people who hate Vienna have gone to kind of finally throw her out of the place or hang her or whatever. And they go back through the doors of the saloon. And, and what we get um, is her sitting at this grand piano, which <laughs> you have to remember is backdropped by a cliff. Yeah. This is... <laughs> Just so looks so extraordinary, dressed in a white ball gown. Yeah, a, a evening gown. I would say more on the ball gown. Right. Yeah, playing. Yeah, playing, and ignoring them. And <laughs> uh, it and the impact of the scene is is hard to. Yeah, because you're at this point. Because um, Vienna plays the tough guy. At one point, she does wave a gun around. She, mm-hmm. she you know, she 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 is kind of like, yeah, no, I'm going to fight you. Um, you. You are not getting rid of me. So you're kind of expecting when we burst through the doors of the saloon that she's going to be, you know, maybe tooled up, yeah. ready to kick ass. Nope. She's sitting in an evening gown, a white evening gown, playing a piano. There's more than one way to kick ass, Gary. That's true. Absolutely. <laughs> Doesn't always involve a gun. Absolutely. Because to me, what she's saying with that is, you are so far beneath me. Yeah. I've got this life going on that you, you know, you could not hope to imagine the source of my strength. Yeah. Um. But you know that that kind of balls to the wall confidence only takes you too far when you are faced by people with guns and ropes, and yeah. you know the ability to burn down your saloon. Absolutely. So um, I wanted to ask you, Lindsay, before we go on to oh, I'll, you know, I'll do the end of the plot um, or whatever. Um, I would like you to 
tell us a little bit about the blacklist? Because this is, I think, another thing that is weird about Johnny Guitar. Yeah, um, I will go on to the blacklist. I just wanted to say something a bit more, if, if you don't mind, about uh, the, the character of Vienna and, and the, the masculine way she's presented. And this is, this is made quite overt, I think, in the dialogue. So the first thing, pretty much the first thing that Johnny Guitar says, apart from can I get a cup of coffee, is, is 15 minutes in and he arrives at the, um, he's arrived at the saloon and he says to the bartender, where's the boss? And by this he means Vienna, and and from then on he does everything Vienna tells him to. Yes. And this is this is intercut with a, you know at one point when Vienna does strap on a gun, he comes out of the kitchen. He spends a lot of time in the kitchen helping the cook wearing an apron. He comes out carrying this dainty little teacup. Mm. Um, and I know we'll hear from you later on about Sterling Hayden and what an interesting actor he was. But that, mm. that's an interesting choice in 1954 for yeah, the nominative hero of this film certainly the, the, the one it's named it's named after yeah and, and very much the support act absolutely and and you know we'll get on to nicholas ray as well um the director yeah. you know who has his own stuff going on um i, I kind of think that, that that again um it, when it was re sort of when the film was rediscovered because as Lindsay pointed out later on um critics didn't know what to make of it it wasn't particularly successful um it, it was too ahead of its time to be to be frank and a few years later it was french critics yet again of the course. critics that, oui. Bien oui. sûr. Uh, the critics who uh, went on uh, many of them to become the, the best directors of the french new wave who rediscovered the film along with all of nicolas ray's work and um they what they kind of realized was you know this, this, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on here about gender swap about role reversal, yeah. about S&M and fetish, um, and about something that we now call female-led relationships, which was, you know, something... Do we? I've never heard that term in my puff. And really? No. Oh, okay. It's a thing. <laughs> uh, it's a thing, Lindsay, believe me. Um, it's an actual sort of fetish thing uh, where people will, you know, women will, you know, I don't know, go on dating sites and, and advertise very specifically for, I've decided right. um, that, you know, anybody I'm with... Uh, is going to have to accept that they're in a female-led relationship. And that means I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to be obedient. Right, okay. So, um, wow. So way, 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 way ahead of this being kind of out there in any way, shape or form, um, this is what we're just being shown. Yeah. Um, and also that is uh, very much reflected in Emma, who is, you know quite plainly the leader of an entire pack of yeah. men yeah <laughs> you know uh, at one point they're 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 pulling a posse together and she said i'll be riding first yeah she'll be riding in front of the posse just on the french thing god there's so much to talk about i really I know, feel like i know we've got it's so enormous. much to say about this film but yeah, as you say the french loved it and uh it's mentioned in pierrot le fou uh, yeah. jean-luc goddard's film yeah, yeah. um and in truffaut's mississippi mermaid um, I can't remember the French for that. I think it's La Sirene du Mississippi or something. Ooh, well done. <laughs> um, Jean-Paul Belmondo and Catherine Deneuve go to a showing of the film and then talk about it. Wow. So, yeah. There you go. Nicholas Ray, very much unsung in America for a lot of time, very much sung in France. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so two more things about yes. her being the boss and then I'm going yes. to move on to the blacklist. Is yes, that, that's that, what sounds, we'll, that sounds good. That's what we'll do. So... Two of her staff. This is this is at the start, and this is just really underlining what uh, the masculinity, I guess, of Vienna's character. So her croupier says, "I've never seen a woman who was more like a man. She thinks like one, she acts like one, and sometimes this is straight to camera. Sometimes makes me feel like I'm not." <laughs> <laughs> and then similarly, the cook says, "I never believed I'd end up working for a woman." Pause. 
unliking it. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is one of the things about this movie. It it's it may have bemused people in 1954, but it wasn't bemusing them because it was so subtle that it was getting under their radar. It was the opposite. Yeah. It was bemusing them because it was in your face. Yeah. It's in your face, the gender yeah. stuff and the role reversal of the sex. Yeah. And I, I think I, I made a note, and I think this is key. So Vienna is not just sexual, but she's not guilty about it. No. And this is, this is I think, why Emma is in such a rage, because Emma appears to be a kind of sexually frustrated woman with a, a kind of longing for the dancing kit that has never been and will never be kind of... Um, consummated. Consummated. And at one point, Emma kind of hears Vienna's story and says, I'm not satisfied. And it's like, no, no. And that's you're not your satisfied. Key, that's your so key thing. So Vienna's love of sex or ability to and willingness to have sex and not feel guilty about it, not feel shamed by it, is an absolute affront yeah. to Emma. Yeah, Hence yeah. Her Where's the shame? Yeah. Exactly. But the blacklist. So, um, let me just find by. Yeah. Um, let me fill in time while Lindsay goes through a copious notes on the blacklist, because this is actually crucial to Johnny Guitar. We were having a conversation about this film um, a few months ago, and I was saying, oh, you know, that's nothing really to do with the blacklist. And Lindsay went, heaven forfend, Gary, <laughs> and then came out with a list of stuff uh, that makes it exactly about the blacklist. Okay, so just a little bit of backstory about, about what we are calling the, the, the blacklist and what was called then at the time. So the House of Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, was set up actually in 1938 to identify um, kind of security threats to America, whether at that point that was fascist threats or communist threats. It very quickly, because America is America, became very much focused on uh, the communists and they just felt, well, you know, fascism will happen and it'll sort itself out and, you know, how's that working out for them? Um, so it, it very much became focused on the on the communist threat um, from, from the late 30s. In 1947, it turned its attention to Hollywood and the communist influence uh, on Hollywood films. Now, Hollywood films had, certainly at the start of the war, been pretty kind of pro-Russia because this was part of the national security, this part of the, the Allies' um, uh, kind of focus and, and the, the propaganda propaganda focus. So famously, there's a film from the early 40s called Song of Russia, which is just a peon to the, the, the kind of Russian motherland that, that was made by the studios at the behest of the White House. Very quickly, as we all know, after 1945, the end of the war brought about the start of the Cold War. So any kind of notion of being pro-communist, pro-Russia, socialist even, even slightly left-wing, after the war was seen as, as very suspicious. So in 1947, HUAC says, we got to look at Hollywood, look at what they're churning out, all this communist propaganda. Um, and so they started to do this forensic kind of, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And this resulted, so it was, it was kind of these these televised, not trials exactly, because this, this was a House committee, not a, not a court of law, but it might as well have been. Mm. So these these mm. these trials, and these uh, prominent left wing writers, film writers, uh, started kind of pleading the fifth and saying they did not want to incriminate themselves. This resulted in a, a formal blacklist. So ten writers called the Hollywood Ten were were blacklisted and were not able to work. They were actually outlawed from working in Hollywood. As as well as that formal blacklist, there was I guess what was called a grey list. So probably about three hundred other actors, writers, mm -hmm. directors, not formally outlawed from working, but coincidentally they didn't really yeah. get any yeah. work at the time. Yeah. 
So how this relates to Johnny Guitar is kind of threefold. And I should say these directors included people like Joseph Losey, yeah. who, who we'll know went on to kind of do The Servant, various other things. But he had to move to the UK. And this is why a lot of his films are British. He wasn't able to work. Yeah, he was kind of absolutely. greylisted. Wasn't absolutely. able to work. Cy Enfield as well in a film called Hell Drivers. He came to England yes. and he's done, he's done a lot of other things as well. The actor John Garfield, again yes. greylisted, kind of died a broken man. So this was a thing that had a real impact on, on kind of people's careers. So how this links to Johnny Guitar three ways. Um, I mentioned earlier that maybe this film was written by um, Philip Jordan. Philip Jordan, that's right. Maybe this film was written by Philip Jordan. Maybe it was written by Ben Maddow. Ben Maddow was a blacklisted writer. Mm -hmm. um, and what Philip Jordan used to do was to be a front for writers. Right. So they would write, they would get some money, and the, but the credit would be his. Yeah. Um, so Philip Jordan is credited as the screenwriter on this. Whether he wrote it or not is is yeah. another thing. Later on, uh, some journalist interviewed Ben Maddow and Ben Maddow had said, oh yeah, that one's mine, that one's mine. The journalist showed him the film because he'd never seen Johnny Guitar and he was like, mm, maybe that wasn't mine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't really remember writing that. Yeah, so okay. maybe it was Philip, Philip Jordan. Yeah. But okay. the, 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 the rumour about Philip Jordan is certainly some, some writers for whom he was a front believed he never wrote a word in his life. Right. And he won an Oscar for a film in 1955 that people gen genuinely believed he had not written a word of and the joke was that he forgot to kind of get a screenwriter for his acceptance speech so his acceptance speech was thank you that was, <laughs> that was all he could come up with so that's is the that the one where there was two writers that actually wrote it and they had to give them an Oscar like a sort of honorary Oscar about 15 years oh, later probably yeah anyway. probably um, and, and Ben Maddow also wrote uh, Man of the West um, ah. And and which was a novel as well, and Philip Jordan got all the kind of credit for right. that. And Ben Maddow said he was kind of um, in London at one point and saw a Penguin edition of Man of the West that he didn't even know existed. <laughs> so he was getting no money from that. So wow. back to Johnny Guitar. So yes. possibly um, it was written by a blacklisted writer, and and the credit was was taken by by a front. But thematically as well, as well the film is all about a kind of community turning on people mm. um, and at, at one point as you say Turkey uh, who, who has been involved mm. says that Vienna was involved and that that kind of that denouncing is yeah. enough to get yeah. Vienna into trouble so that's another kind of list because that's another thing that happened people to save their own skins would say well I'm not a communist but, but I can tell you I've who been is. to meetings and I can tell you who is yeah yeah I, I, I think yeah the, the whole blacklist that the, the horror of it uh, even uh, perhaps even more than than the original blacklist was the pressure on people to name names yeah and the fact that some people's reputations either careers never recovered from not naming names or their reputations never recovered from the fact that out of sheer cowardice they, they did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Elia Kazan, you know, um, he, he. I think if that he had never ever named names at that committee, that he would be seen as a major director without anybody particularly arguing. Um, when he was given an honorary Oscar in the nineties or two thousands, mm. um, half of the audience uh, refused to applaud or stand up yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and so there's that. 
there's also that community lynching. The whole community yes. kind of stands up and yeah. something. And also the guilt by association. So at some point, Vienna says to Emma, you know, me and the dancing kid aren't the same. Yeah. And she says, but you cast the same shadow. Right. Beautiful. You hang around with them so you're as guilty as they are. Yeah. Um. So that's that's kind of made very explicit. And I think that was kind of Nicholas Ray's uh, intention yeah. was to do that. Um, and the third possibly <laughs> tangential link to the, to, the, to the blacklist and the whole communist witch hunt is that Mercedes McCambridge after this, I mean, she'd, she'd won an Oscar in 1947, her first, her first film. This is 1954. She'd worked in films between 47 and 54. After 1954, she didn't work in another film until 1956. She did TV work, but didn't, didn't work in, in Hollywood for another couple of years. She felt sure that Joan Crawford had put pressure on people not to employ her. Mm. Because as we'll learn later on, they feuded throughout the film. I mean, Joan Crawford Joan Crawford feuded throughout her life it seems yeah. there was no one with whom she could not have a feud um, and Mercedes McCambridge was one of those people and, and Mercedes McCambridge very much felt that she, that Joan Crawford had effectively grey-listed her by using her power in Hollywood to make sure that she didn't work yeah so so yeah so as well as the whole thing about um, that's kind of yeah connected to the blacklist it's also this very odd sort of um, mirror uh, of what was go actually going on in the movie, yeah, uh, that, that these two women really, really did hate each other, yeah. And um, you were saying earlier that um, Ernest Borgnine, who was in the movie, <laughs> um, you, you'd seen something from uh, his autobiography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what was that? Because it made me laugh. Okay, uh, so a little bit of, of backstory to this is that as well as going on to be a hench lesbian for for Orson Welles. <laughs> Uh, Mercedes McCambridge in the 70s um, was the voice of the demon in The Exorcist. Yeah, so the, the the girl, the actress, was, was Linda Blair, yep. but her voice was supplied by Mercedes McCambridge. Um, so they, you know, your mother sucks cocks in hell. Was, that's Mercedes McCambridge. That's Mercedes McCambridge. And Ernest Borgnine said, um, you know, on the set of the film that, that Joan Crawford and Mercedes McCambridge were constantly at each other, constantly feuding, constantly rowing. And he said, I don't really know the upshot of it, but... I can guess where Mercedes got the inspiration for her demon voice. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Joan Crawford. I, you know, I, I, the only thing I would say about Joan Crawford, uh, you know, I know, I realise the evidence is overwhelming and all that, but um, I, I'm yet to, to hear or read or see anything nice about Joan Crawford. Like, I'd just like to read one thing that says, that Joan Crawford, she was a great lady. Yeah, I don't know. No, it's not happening, <laughs> is it? It's not happening. It's not. Um, um, Mercedes McCambridge called her a mean, tipsy, powerful, rotten egg lady, which is kind of a wow, a, a kind poetic. Of, yeah, kind of a schoolgirl kind of thing. Sterling Hayden, she also feuded with. They didn't get on at all. Mm. And Sterling Hayden said, "There is not enough money in Hollywood to lure me into making another picture with Joan Crawford, and I like money." <laughs> <laughs> I think we should do. There is a whole thing here about the the, the powerful personalities on set. Uh, we were talking earlier about well, what must it have been like to be on that set? It should have been a film in itself. But I think I'm going to do a bit more plot before we get to that bit. Okay. So um, basically, um, uh, the, the saloons burning, and uh, the whole idea now is they are taking Vienna and uh, the poor unfortunate Turkey out to get hung, hung, hung hanged, hanged. Hanged. We'll stick with hanged. I think so, we should. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Johnny, as we know, is uh, a super, a super sharp shooter, and uh, with a bit of fancy uh, gunplay, he manages to rescue her. Uh, Johnny and Vienna head to the hideout uh, where um, uh, the dancing kid and his gang are hiding, and uh, with the lynch mob in hot pursuit, it all ends up in a 
classic Hollywood shoot 'em up bloodbath. Um, but of course, it's Vienna and Emma who have to settle their hate hate relationship and settle the film with bullets. Yeah. So, what's right with this picture? Oh, blimey. Every time we, we come across this, it's like, oh, we get so into what's weird about it. But that's what we yeah, love about it. But that's that exactly what we love, what we love about, about it. it. I think um, it, I, I think people will get the idea that pretty much everything is great about this picture. It's just, it's it's weird and it turns everything on its head and it's female female led. Yeah. Um, which uh, you know, I'm I'm always I'm always into. I'm really interested in the names. So Vienna, surely not her real name. Yeah. Johnny Guitar, not his, real, not name. his real name. Dancing Kid, oh. not his real name. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what his real name is, but he's not he's not the dancing kid. Emma Small is her real name and, and yeah. Small is who she is. She's got this kind of narrow worldview. Yeah. She wants a local town for local people. Yeah. As they yeah. Say. yeah. So the the romance part of that, which would normally even in a Western is is generally the, the biggest kind of subplot. The romance between Johnny Guitar and, and Vienna is settled in the first forty five minutes. And as you yeah. say, the rest of it really is about the, the, the hatred between between these two characters. And there is a there is a bit where Emma is also a sharpshooter and when they've taken Vienna away from the saloon to, to hang her in Turkey. Oh and by the way, let's think about Turkey's name. And his yeah. his his yeah. he talks Turkey, he gets hanged by his turkey neck. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, when they were taking uh, Vienna away from the saloon and um, Emma fires her single shot on the chandelier which brings the chandelier down and, mm. and, and burns the saloon and the, the look of glee yeah, kind of well, witchy fantastic. glee on Emma's face is, and the and lighting and the way the flames are dancing yeah. in the background and the shadows and her face glaring out of it you know she, she is if her she managed the vocal personification of evil uh, in the nineteen yeah. seventies, she manages the face personification yes. of evil in that moment. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely brilliant. And and so they're leading they're leading Vienna away in her white white evening gown, and she's in this little black gown. She's this. So it's again, it's another Western thing: the black hats, the white hats, yeah. as they say, yeah. the goodies and the baddies. And they're they're just kind of thinking Nicholas Nic- Ray, the writer, whoever he or she may be, may have been. How can we just? bring that into into a kind of gender gender thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to sort of mention a little bit about Nicholas Ray um, because, and, and I'll try and keep it brief because a, a lot of people who know film know Nicholas Ray. So um, uh, forgive me if I'm um, sort of repeating things, but um, Nick Ray um, essentially had a, a, an extraordinary directing career between the late 1940s and 1963. Um, and he was... He was a he was a very tortured individual um, who seemed to be forever torn between the part of him that wanted to be a rebel artist, um, which would come through on the best of his films, like Rebel Without a Cause, like Johnny Guitar, like uh, The Lusty Men, like In a Lonely Place, like Bigger Than Life, like They Live by Night. This incredible run of films where you could feel uh, this genuine innovation and emotion coming through the screen, which was not mm-hmm. Hollywood. However, he liked money and he also liked the status of being a big Hollywood director. And what essentially killed his uh, directing career is that he took a contract with a production company uh, which made him, he boasted, the highest paid director in the world. But however, um, all this production company were interested in was profit. Um, And therefore, they made him do uh, King of Kings 
which was a Jesus epic. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, it was such a run of those, wasn't it? Late yeah, 50s, early 60s. Exactly. At that time, this was the time of Ben-Hur and the Ten Commandments. These were the films that got bums on seats. Uh, Nicholas Raymond had no track record of making films, anything like that, but he made it because he was a good technician. It was profitable, um, but also, of course, the critics who had at least liked Nicholas Ray's work uh, were completely disinterested. Mm. Um, And the next film um, he did was a film called 55 Days at Peking, which was supposedly about the 1900 Boxer Rebellion, um, but, you know, had absolutely no interest in anybody Chinese whatsoever and even had one character essentially, you know, narrowing their eyes and doing it in yellow face. Um, by the time he'd got to the end of this film, um, you know, the critics absolutely despised it and it didn't make a profit and he never, in the end, made another film. Wow. Uh, it broke him uh, wow. because he'd lost the critical thing yeah. and he'd lost the commercial thing and he wandered into a long, a long decline um, of drug addiction, alcohol addiction and gambling addiction and died at the age of 67 in 1979. Um, there was also um, rumours which, you know, which, which seemed pretty substantiated that he had an affair on the set of Rebel Without a Cause um, with Natalie Wood, um, who was only 16 years old at the time. But there are also less substantiated rumours that he slept with either James Dean or Sal Mineo or both. Yeah. Uh, so he was also wrestling with his own sexuality, uh, some of which was not necessarily making healthy choices. So... I mean, to say the least. To say the least. I mean, that's, that's yeah. quite a nice... Sorry to butt in there. It's quite no. a nice way of saying that, you know, sleeping with a 16-year-old girl. and is and, an unhealthy and those And those guys were not that much older than that, was, yeah. was, was making an unhealthy Absolutely. choice. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's really important to say that, that, that one of the things that the Me Too movement has, has really, really finally kind of broke out into the open is Nic- the Nicholas Rays of this world did that kind of thing. Of course, they were making their own personal um, choices and, and therefore they're entirely responsible mm. for them. But they were fitting into a long tradition of male behaviour yeah. in the Hol- in Hollywood. It was so normalised that nobody even used the word paedophilia or nobody ever thought about reporting them. Um, I mean, if Natalie Woods or Natalie Woods' mother had reported him, it would have just meant Natalie Wood would never work together. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but in many ways, it wasn't, it wasn't even seen as wrong. It, it wasn't, no, it wasn't no. like there's just a culture of silence about it. It's it's just kind of That's normal. It it's like, you know, they have this, chefs have this thing about the, the chef's treat, you know, a little bit of something they're cooking. And I, I wonder if, if kind of young men and women on film sets were just seen as the director's prerogative, the kind yeah. of droit de seigneur. That, that, that I think that's probably a quite way to the director's mm, prerogative. Mm, yeah. Which makes you wonder and what... And producers, of course. I was going to say, I was going to say, it makes you wonder what the producers were doing. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It's because they had even more power. Um, it, it, it's, yeah, it was a dark, yeah, Hollywood's dark history of sexual abuse. Yeah. Basically. And, and Nicholas Ray was certainly at one part, a part of that. Um, so you had this guy on set, um, not an entirely healthy character. You've got Joan Crawford on set, mm. not an entirely healthy <laughs> character, I think it's fair to say. You've got Mercedes McCambridge, who, uh, no evidence she was an unhealthy character, but was a feisty, rebellious, sort of a bit of an outlier. Uh, and also apparently an alcoholic for many, many years and right. was and was also at this at this time. Right. She, she went on to, to kind of volunteer and um, support and promote... Uh, uh, a recovery place right. later on. Okay. Well, 
one of the issues with doing this uh, the, this podcast, Lindsay, is that once we start researching to some of the actors or some of the I know whatever, it's just like it starts to get really dark. And I you're know. Sort of like oh my god, I um, know, and we end up kind of bringing ourselves down at the end. Yeah, saying, oh, yeah. that's a really sad story. I know. We're, I know. We're, <laughs> we're being glib about her wearing a black dress. <laughs> well. Okay. I'm, Let's get back to the glibness. On, I, I hope, a slightly more positive note. Uh, uh, well, positive, I don't know. Uh, whatever. Um, and the fourth person, extraordinary person on this set uh, was Sterling Hayden, oh, yeah, who course. played Tell Johnny Guitar. Him. Now, really great thing. If you are interested in getting this film uh, or watching this film, I would really recommend the, the, the currently available Blu-ray, which has an interview with Sterling Hayden on it. Um, and Sterling Hayden, you know, had a... A long history of being leading man-ish, um, villain, um, usually an anti-hero, I think it's probably. Yeah. Anti-hero tough guy on some great movies uh, like uh, Stanley Kubrick's um, The Killing, um, like um, uh, like Johnny Guitar, and obviously a bit later on in a more comic sense uh, in Doctor Strangelove. A French journalist, because of course uh, he's in Nicholas Ray films. <laughs> so you know, oh my God, the French worship Sterling Hayden because he's in Nicholas Ray films. Um, a French journalist gets an interview with him, but the interview is conducted on a boat, um, Sterling Hayden's boat, parked on the Seine in Paris, <laughs> and basically Sterling Hayden won't let him on the boat. He's just leading over this kind of there's a, he's got a camera there's a camera obviously on the riverbank and this poor journalist kind of leaning over <laughs> with his microphone um, to, to sort of capture what he's saying and Sterling Hayden's continuing to work on his boat uh, while this interview is going on, you know, just doing this stuff that presumably is really, really interesting. Now, when I say a boat, you, you might be thinking, oh, this is a P. Diddy, you know, kind of party cruise. Yeah. No, it's like some barge type, right. type of it. And basically for years, he, he explains that for the last few years, he hated Hollywood. He's fed up with it. Um, he decided to buy a boat and he just kind of loafs around the world like survivalism type <laughs> thing and it turns out that this that Sterling Hayden is a real honest to goodness proper authentic beatnik like Jack Kerouac on the road brilliant alternative lifestyle you know he's not bought into anything that he's done in Hollywood he thinks it's all a bit of a farce really <clears throat> and um Finally, he gets to the sort of question of, uh, is Johnny Guitar? You know, I'm not going to do the accent. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I think you just have. Yeah, I think I just have. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, so, yeah, Johnny Guitar. Um, um, what were your experiences of Johnny Guitar? And, and also, pretty much says is, I was lousy in that film. Oh. I was just lousy. And, and this journalist is going, but, but it's Johnny Guitar kind of thing. And he's like saying, yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't have any memories of it except the fact that I watched it and I thought, Jesus Christ, I was crap. Oh. And and it's kind of like it, it's you know not that's not word for word, yeah. but that's pretty much what you have to say about it. And it's just it's so perfect in this Johnny Guitar package because Johnny Guitar, very possibly the oddest Western ever made, yeah. and this is the oddest interview with a major actor that I have ever seen, it, it, and it's perfect. This is um, this is this is. Kind of what I love about you. I, I find it very adorable that everything is always hyperbole with you. You, yeah, you know, this all... is like the weirdest interview that ever happened. <laughs> when we in a, in our episode on Midsummer, you're like, "This is the weirdest sex scene that's ever been filmed." It's like, really? Is it? 
keep on keep on doing you, babe. Keep on being <laughs> hyperbolic because it's very entertaining. Hyperbolics. I think that's what we should probably call it. <laughs> Gary's new podcast, Hyperbolics. <laughs> You're completely true. I, 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 for years, I, yeah, no, I, I do. I always immediately go down the road of, it's the best, it's the weirdest, yeah. it's the stupidest, it's the best, yeah, yeah whatever, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but... Um... I honestly do think that that Sterling Hayden interview is the weirdest interview I, I've ever seen with... A major yeah. Hollywood actor. Okay. It is so odd. Yeah, and it makes a perfect double bill with Johnny Guitar. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't. I don't think he's. I, I don't think any anything. I don't think anything about Johnny Guitar is bad. Actually, that that's. I'm putting my colours to the mask. I think it's just amazing. Yeah, and and I, I, I don't think he's he acts badly in it at all. There's a bit which I think is actually really good. So he's this reformed gunfighter, and this is why he's come to find Vienna again because when they split up before, she's like, "I'm not interested in being a gunfighter's widow. Mm. I'm not interested in you if that's what you are." Mm. So he's taken years to kind of you know it takes time to change us. Steven Seagal once famously said um, he's taken I can't believe you managed to slip Steven Seagal into one of the podcasts brilliant anyway sorry so he's taken the time to change and he now plays guitar and he's not a gunfighter anymore but there's one point it's a is, is it the dancing kid or is it one of the dancing kids kind of gang members says something to Johnny Guitar and he kind of slaps his, he goes to slap his thigh and like draw his gun out with this kind of picture of fury on his face. Of course, he doesn't carry a gun anymore. So he's kind of slapping his where his gun belt yeah. should be. Yeah. And, and Vienna's like, you haven't changed at all. Yeah. If you had a gun there, that guy would be dead. Yeah. Yeah. So of course she's grateful for it later on when he can yeah, save her exactly. from the news. Yeah, so come yeah. on, George. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Cut the cut the guy some slack. Yeah. But what I'm gonna say is actually I'm gonna be non hyperbole person. Go on then. Um I think Johnny Guitar is flawed and it's flawed for one simple reason. Every time Nicholas Ray has to shoot a bit that's actually a Western, it's boring as hell. Um <laughs> you, you, because he has n- plainly no interest whatsoever in people riding horses or gunfights or he, he doesn't give a shit um and it, it's play he's what he's interested in is the psychodrama yeah and every scene particularly in the saloon is astonishing yeah and every scene where it's in the open spaces that is supposed to be you know like a western like yeah. a john ford or yeah, howard yeah, hawks yeah, type yeah. scene it, you know i could have shot it yeah it's boring Okay, okay, I'll go along with that. But I think I think that that brings us back to the monster that is Joan Crawford, and I don't think we've maybe spent enough time on no, on her. Bit and, yeah, but um, I mean, she's she's great in this. She is. It, it should be Fabulous. said. She's great. Um, but she also exerted a lot of control on sex. So this this mm. um this uh, what do you, it's like a product. This product was hers. She she yeah. kind of uh took it and was was able to to run with it. Um, and so on set, you know, she she had an affair with Nicholas Ray, apparently. <laughs> I, I mean, really, this Jesus is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Vienna liked sex, was unashamed of it. Joan Crawford apparently liked, liked sex, sex, unashamed of it. Yeah, fair play. Um, all all throughout her life, I mean, pretty much every film she made, she slept with somebody um, on uh, on, right. on that film. Um, so she did exert a lot of a lot of control and she was jealous of the attention that Mercedes McCambridge was yeah. getting from Nicholas Ray as a kind of young actress so this is how this kind of feud started also Joan Crawford had dated Mercedes McCambridge's husband oh my god <laughs> you're kidding no, this no. is ridiculous I, t- I tell you what I mean the, the list of people that Joan Crawford hasn't slept with 
is probably quite short, I would say. But anyway. Did so, you, is it true Joan Crawford cut up all her clothes? Yeah, yeah. Cut up all her clothes. <laughs> and and her own personal clothes and, and threw them out on this highway. What the Yeah. Hell? But that brings me to my favourite Joan Crawford story. Do you mind? Can uh, I tell no, you you've got, again? We've got to go for it. Okay. Let's end this thing. All right. So she had a famous feud with Bette Davis throughout their careers. I mean, 30 years, these women hated each other hated each other there's all kinds of things there's a really good um, Ryan Murphy show about it called Feud where they're played by yeah. Susan Sarandon mm. and Jessica Lang. Um mm. and it's very entertaining um, but th- so they had this famous feud hated each other all kinds of reasons they hated each other um, and Joan Crawford died first I mean they, they both lived to a ripe old age but Joan Crawford died, died first and whether this is anecdotal or not I don't know but I love it and so people went to Bette Davis and she said well you know I was brought up to say that if if somebody dies you don't say anything bad just good so John Crawford's dead good (laughs) (laughs) and on that note uh, Lindsay um, how many grand pianos would you give uh, Johnny Guitar first for weirdness and secondly for quality Tens, tens, tens across the board. Wow, I love really? It. It's ten weird. It's ten quality. I watched it this week. I watched it a month ago. I'll watch it in two months' time. I'll watch it five times a year till I die. I love oh, it. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay. Uh, nine grand pianos for me for weird and eight grand pianos for me for quality. Um, and I, I take two away. If the whole film was shot in that bloody saloon between those four people and Ernest Borgnine every now and again creating trouble I would be it would be ten uh, but but every time it heads out of that saloon yeah yeah fair enough fair enough I think you know let's if you take away one image it's it's this crazy woman <laughs> white dress grand piano by a cliff can't say fairer than that absolutely until next time until next time What's Wrong With This Picture is brought to you by Lindsay McCulloch and Gary Mulholland and is recorded by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg. Music composed and performed by Russ Keffert.